you know, making movies is hard. Making movies is hard. Welcome. This is a podcast about the struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Oliver Purcell, the founding host of the podcast, and I'm a sci-fi horror filmmaker, and my first feature film is playing its own festival circuit right now. We're going to be in Kentucky next weekend at Scarefest in Lexington. I will not be there, but hopefully people will be there. But you know who will be there? Bruce Campbell and Ted Raimi will be there. And I don't know how I can convince them to go see my movie, but guys, please mental just like walk into the screening room and watch the alternate and I, that would make my life if bruce campbell and ted Remy watch my movie anyways i'm liz manichel i'm a writer director producer with two features that i have made and i'm in development on about five more i'm a distribution consultant who used to manage sundance's creative distribution initiative enough about me this week we welcome film critic and filmmaker he's actually my favorite film critic Tim Cogshell on the show to talk about how he got started as a film critic in the 90s and his process in writing reviews and even his process as a filmmaker. After the interview, we will talk about an article from No Film School about the pushback of vaccine mandates in Hollywood. And Arik will also tell us how his experience at Heartland Film Festival went. So first, Arik, how are you doing? I'm feeling alive now versus last week where I was like barely holding on <laughs> to the world. Since this last recording, my job is finished completely. It ran right into Heartland. So I had to miss a bunch of parties and screenings because I had to work in my hotel room or my Airbnb room oh my instead of going to the festival. But I got done just in time for me to go out and like go to a film festival party on Saturday. And I went and saw a horror film that's like my competition, you know, at the festival. So that was really fun. And yeah, you know, walking away from that film festival, you just think about, okay, your movie, like, where does it stack up against the other movies that you saw and the other movies that are there? And you're like, I've been thinking about how important it is to focus not just on getting the story on screen and making it happen, but like all these movies, they have something special about their locations and their art direction, mm. you know, and their movie is not just like, yeah, we shot wherever we could. No, like they really picked great locations and they really picked very specific things about their art direction that informed story and made it special and made it stand out against other movies. And so just thinking about my next movie, you know, normally I just think about like, okay, where can I possibly shoot this that I can afford? And that's actually going to let me shoot it. But now I'm trying to think about how can I craft my locations specifically around the story that's going to make it special and stand out and be different. And like, how will the art direction play into that? And so it's not just wherever it can be, but it's like actually this like really well-crafted visual thing that goes along with the storytelling. I mean, it does a lot for production value. I'm really loving you saying this because I was looking at my budget for my short film the other day and I was like, oh, our location is like one fifth the budget. Like it is a large <laughs> amount of the budget. But when I saw it, I was like, this is it. It adds so much more context and substance and value to the story that we're telling. And it's a really convenient place. So I think there's a world where you can work within your resources and find unique locations. But I love what you're saying because you can automatically tell a lower quality film. And I mean, quality in terms of like budget and creativity that's put into it. If you see white walls, if you see Ikea furniture, whatever yeah. it is, it's like the same thing with bad sound. When you hear bad sound, you're like, okay, well, this filmmaker didn't put the time and energy was needed into this film that they should have. Anyway, it'd be nice in the future to have someone secure locations for us to yes. like have someone whose job was 
to find the yeah. locations. Like a locations department, maybe? Yeah, that sounds that nice. In regular movies? Yeah, that would be great, wouldn't it? That's such a nice fantasy. It's like such a pipe dream for me, but... Yeah, same here. <laughs> I wanted to tell you what happened to me yesterday. All right, tell me. If you listen to the show, or maybe if you know me, I don't even know if I've mentioned it. I am a fangirl for Mike Flanagan. Yeah. I tweeted at him yesterday to bless my upcoming horror shoot and yeah, he, I saw that. he responded <laughs> i so didn't see that part wow he responded Amazing. like flanagan said that he wishes us every ounce of luck and that on his sets they say break a lens and then he sent me a gif of a man doing the cross <laughs> because i asked him to bless our set and i told him that he's pretty much the reason why i went into genre filmmaking to begin with so i just think it's really cool that our film set is blessed by the master and hopefully that'll make this weekend a little easier. That's awesome. Yeah. What a cool thing. And what an amazing just thing that can happen in the world today where you can like reach out to one of your heroes and they'll actually respond. And like you hear these stories all the time, but like it's, it's never happened to me or someone I know. So congratulations. Well, That's really I mean, <laughs> Mike Flanagan's like a hero to me, but I think that... And in the genre world, I think he's very, very well known, but uh, it's not as if he's Brad Pitt and I'm like throwing out a stone yeah. in the ocean of people who but try to reach Brad out to him. Pitt to you. So he is, he is my good. Brad Pitt. Very cool. Yeah. So yeah, we're, we're shooting this weekend and we just had the makeup test and it was funny. We were talking about like really ineffective film sets and the makeup artist said, you know, if the director is calm and confident and knows what they want, then everyone else takes the cue from them. And if they're mean and if they're out of control, if they're chaotic, everyone receives that from them. And I start to think to myself and I was like, well, I'm pretty anxious and I never really know exactly what I want, but I do try to be really nice on a film set. <laughs> so hopefully I think I'd like to get to a place in film production where the director can have room to not know all the time and to try different things. I don't know if this sounds ridiculous, but I think very often there's this pressure for a director to put on this show to be like, that's exactly it. And it's like, sometimes you don't know. You don't know until the edit. You don't know until it sits with you for a moment. And I'd like to help dissolve the expectation. You need to be a clear communicator as a director, but I don't think you necessarily have to put on this show of like extreme satisfaction all the time. Yeah. I don't know. I think it's like, it's really tough because like you don't want to lose confidence, you know, in your crew or your crew to lose confidence in you. So like, that's why people say that they're like, Oh yeah. Some a director who knows what they want and, you know, is really like clear on their vision. Like that's something that you want to believe in and follow. But I think, you know, there's nothing wrong with trying things as long as you don't feel like you're trying things because you don't have any ideas. Right. Oh, right. Have any like, you know, confidence in your own vision. Like you can have total confidence in your own vision and what you're trying to pull off and also try things. So yeah. I think it's just like a fine balance. I was talking to some guy at the festival and some film producer, Sam from uh, Killy Big. Shout out to that film. It's very cool. I only saw part of it. Anyways, he was saying that like, no, 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 all work. Like <laughs> the people who are the most successful are the most like narcissistic yeah. You know, terrible, super self-obsessed people. And those are the people who are successful and who have make the best movies. So like, yeah, just like be delusional, be insane. Like, you know, don't care about anyone else. Like just do what you want. Ask people to jump over the moon for you. And you don't care about people's feelings. You don't care about anything else. Like you only care about your art. And I was like, dude, like there's gotta be a middle ground. I don't want that to be the thing that people think that you have to be this like 
completely self-absorbed asshole to be a great filmmaker. You know, I think like you can believe in yourself and believe in your vision. You can ask a lot of your crew, but there's nothing wrong with treating them nice and being friendly. You don't have to be an asshole to be successful. And, you know, he was like, I don't know. Like, that's, not, that's not how I see things. I'm like, okay, well. Well, no, I think he's right. I think in Hollywood, we reward that behavior. And we kind of like, I had someone the other day, a member of my crew was like, I'm here to serve you in the film. And I was just thinking like, no, please don't ever say that. Like, no, we're here to do something all together. And I get that we're like putting the film first. But when you put an object in front of a person and you're serving this intangible object, you make excuses for a lot of bad behavior. And I want that kind of mentality to be gone. I think my lack of confidence is not in quote unquote, the vision, but it's more in like ridiculous. I'm like, I never know about eye lines and I never know about the <laughs> line and I never Your know DP's about for, I know. And so we've been shot listing this week and I've been like, she's like, well, you know, if we're going to cross the line here, we're going to need this. And I'm like, cool. Like I defer to you, but on set, every decision has like 15 million ramifications. So it's like, if you change the blocking because an actor wants to feel more free, then you have to adjust like the 30 million different. Anyway, I'm just thinking about that right now. I'm in like, what if land because the shoot hasn't happened yet. But the next time I talk to you, other than our weekly production meeting, (laughs) the shoot will have (laughs) happened and I'll probably be a lot less neurotic about this whole thing. Yeah. I can't wait to hear how it turns out. I'm sure it's going to be fantastic. I will be, I'll be able to sleep again. Speaking of sleeping, don't sleep on (laughs) giving us money. (laughs) Please forget. Please don't forget to support us on Patreon, www.patreon.com slash MMIH podcast, making movies is hard podcast. Every single dollar goes to making this show happen. It goes to our editors. It goes to Facebook ads that we run. It goes to the merch that we purchase that we want to send out to you. We do not profit off of the show when you just want to keep it going. Also check out the International Screenwriters Association. ISA is an organization designed to connect writers with filmmakers through a number of programs they offer. They do a lot of amazing things, but head over to networkisa.org to sign up for free today. Normally, the yearly membership is $100 but you get $20 off by using the promo code MMIH2021, which is valid through November 30th. And it's for new ISA Connect members only. And we really believe in this organization. I just want to say that they have top 25 writers lists. They have consultation courses. They connect filmmakers to writers and we believe them. So please support them. Please support us. Let us know what's going on. But without any more delay, here's our chat with Tim Cogshell. We're here with Tim Cogshell, my favorite film critic of all time. And I'm just glad to see you. It's been years since I've seen your face. So I know we've emailed each other. Thank you for being on the show. You're very welcome. I, I am a radio personality, so nobody ever really sees my face. So, you know, what are those kind of things? We're going to catch you off guard with a rapid fire round of quick questions for you. The first one I thought of is, what was the movie that you found hardest to cover or review? Well, you know, I remember way back in the day, Thelma and Louise came out, 92, 3, something like that. And I absolutely loved Thelma and Louise and reviewed it for whatever magazine I was working for at the time. And suddenly there are all these reviews that popped up that were so really super critical of Thelma and Louise, mostly male film critics. And I, I remember thinking to myself, what are these guys, what are these guys talking about? And, and you know, I would run into to, you know, my male colleagues back then. 
And they would all really kind of poke at me about my fairly loving review of Thelma and Louise. And particularly, they would poke at me about, you know, how do you how do you justify you know, for, look, I, the movie's 30 some odd years old. So I don't think I'm spoiling it for anybody, but, you know, the guy gets shot. <laughs> you know, one of the ladies shoots a guy. And a lot of male critics are really up in arms about that. And I'm like, have you not been watching movies for 40 years? Men kill women <laughs> willy nilly in films. Films open with the women already dead <laughs> in the film. And some man is going to go. And, you know, so so cut it out, you know, you know, you know one 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 sister, you know, plugs one guy. And by the way, he had it coming. <laughs> he was an <laughs> asshole. And so I remember I remember I remember taking a lot of heat for, for, for that review, you know, back in the day. Even my even my publisher was like, well, nobody else is writing about it that way. I'm like, well, they're all wrong. <laughs> so, <laughs> what was a movie that you were the most excited to review? One that I was very, very excited to review and then be very disappointed about was uh, a 2049, the, the Blade Runner sequel, ah. uh, Ryan Gosling, because, you know, Blade Runner was like my movie, you know, and lo, some 30 years later, you know, they, they, they make the sequel and I'm all hyped up on it and, and everything. And it really turned out to be this incredibly disappointing film, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> relatively speaking, Vinny Villeneuve, relatively speaking. And yeah, and I remember I remember, you know, being being incredibly hung up on that for like a week or something. After I was like, I'd rather they just didn't even make a sequel if you're going to jack it up. You know, it was, it's, you know, it was one of those kinds of things. So, yeah, that would that's definitely one that I wanted to poke. And I had read David Mitchell's Cloud Atlas the book, and I loved that book with all my heart. And then, you know, Cloud Atlas <laughs> came out. I was like, ah, geez, <laughs> you know, if you're going to jack it up, just leave it alone. So, yeah, that, that, those were a couple. Of I think you may have stolen the next question, which is what is your least favorite movie? <laughs> well, it's not that it's my least favorite movie. It's just that those were movies that, that were demonstrably jacked up, screwed and just messed up. My, among my least favorite movies would be movies like Mississippi Burning. And a few of these movies came out in the 80s. There was one about uh, the, the Whoopi Goldberg starred in it. These movies were about civil rights in the South. And somehow these movies all managed to make uh, the white people the heroes of the movies. And I'm like, you know, this is a movie in which Megger ever gets killed. But the white dude <laughs> played by, I think it was Alec Baldwin. There were two or three of these movies. And I'm like, how in the world has the civil rights movement <laughs> been turned into this heroic set of efforts by beleaguered white people? <laughs> I'm like, hey, those movies pissed me off so much that I really came to hate them. And some of them were loved. Rob Reiner, you know, I think made that movie. And I you know, I love Rob Reiner. But these movies were so upsetting to me back in the day. So, yeah, those are movies that really bugged me a lot. And then a more fun question. What's your favorite movie? Oh, let's see. My favorite movie. I should say something really sophisticated like Citizen Kane and, and all that kind of stuff. But, <laughs> but look, among them is definitely Thelma and Louise. I still love that movie. Just had an anniversary not long ago. And that's one of the reasons why it's on my mind. And I watched it again and I still love it. And there are a number of really goofy movies that just live in my heart. And whenever I see them pop up, they make me so happy. Earth Girls are easy. <gasps> Oh, oh. Girls are <laughs> I love that movie. I love that movie. I love that movie with all my heart. So, you know, I, I have a, a, a sticky fingers of time. But I have an affection for a great many very small, little obscure films that nobody's seen but me. I don't know Sticky Fingers. I've never even heard of that. Oh, yeah. That it looks cool. Sticky Fingers. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, we just improvised that little segment, but I want to get into the goods. If you don't mind, I'd love to hear just how you got into this. What's your origin story, Tim? Oh, as a film critic? Yeah. 
Well, I didn't become a legitimate film critic until 1990. My wife and I arrived in Los Angeles literally on January 1st, 1990. And and we both just sort of, I came to be a a screenwriter. You know, I was writing screenplays. I sold a screenplay really quick, really early too, to Dolly Parton's company and never got made into a movie. But, you know, so I joined SAG and was doing all of that. And then, you know, I know everything just sort of froze up and writing about movies was, you know, fun too. (laughs) And I got a gig at Entertainment Today newspaper as a film critic writing about movies and have been for 31 years while continuing to make a movie and do this and that here and there and and work in in the industry in all sorts of capacities. But consistently for 31 years, I've always, 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 no matter what else I was doing, college professor or whatever, been a film critic or a film writer or, you know, writing about movies in, in one capacity or another for a whole bunch of different outlets back when there were newspapers and magazines. I wrote for all the, you know, the local ones, LA Weekly, Village View, The Reader, all of which are gone. Box Office Magazine, I wrote for for 17 years. It was um, a very important sort of industry magazine, Entertainment Today, and, you know, occasionally for the Times or, or whatnot. And then back in, in 2010, I got the gig on Film Week, which is the NPR affiliate here in Los Angeles, Pasadena, to be specific. KPCC. KPCC, 89.3 on your FM dial. <laughs> I will now switch to my FM radio voice. This is my <laughs> FM radio voice that I use. It's considerably slower, as you and, and, and have been doing that ever since and writing for a few other magazines. So what the blog or website that I write for now, Synagogues and uh, you know, Digigods and, and all of that. And for Alt Film Guide, I love writing for Alt Film Guide because they, they allow me to write about a lot of little tiny obscure films. So, you know, 31 years of film critic now. And um, it's funny. It's, I hadn't thought about it in a long time. <laughs> but yeah, that's a long time. Mm-hmm. So, you know, just hearing you talk about selling a film early on in your career, what kind of drew you to like kind of go more to film criticism than to like continue to make that your main thing and just write script after script after script and try to just sell those and do that as a for a living? Well, I liked writing about film. I mean, I, I genuinely like it. I like thinking about it, the sort of intellectual thing. I've always been a bit of a teacher, and there's a certain element of teaching, at least in the way that I do film criticism. For me, film criticism isn't so much about my opinion, per se, where a critic is always going to offer their opinion. But I always like to say that my opinion, whether or not I like a film, is the least important thing that I will ever say about a film. And then, you know, I like it, I don't like it. Yes, you know, one of those things will probably be true, but everything else I say about the film will be more important. So there was just that element there. I, I liked it a lot. And, you know, you write stuff and screenplays and you, you sell one here and there. And, uh, and, you know, a couple of films got made into movies. But none of it ever felt like it was needed to be a sort of choice to me of where I had to do this or I had to do that. You know, if I wanted to write a screenplay, I'd write a screenplay and, and my, my agent would walk it around. And, you know, sometimes they'd sell, sometimes they wouldn't. But it wasn't one of those things, I must be the greatest filmmaker or, you know, an Orson Welles kind of thing. You know, I never felt that way about it. If it came up and I had the opportunity to make a film, I did a lot. I made a lot of docs or participated in a lot of docs or, and I co-produced or produced a lot of friends films, which is different than being the director or the writer of a film when you're producing a film. It's a sort of different occupation. So, you know, it, it didn't interrupt anything. So, you know, it just sort of depends on exactly what the gig was, but I just never felt like it was a choice. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking a little bit about how we met for context for anyone listening or for everyone listening. We were on a TV show that I call the Wayne's World the film criticism. <laughs> it was called 
just seen it and it was oh. in our showrunners living room and we did it was like a three-person panel film criticism tv show and I remember there were, I won't out anyone, but there are people who on the show would say things that were spectacular to get their names on the poster, you know, and that was like a claim to fame was like really embrace a film with utmost enthusiasm so that you got to leverage your name on the poster and then amplify your profile. And it seemed to me at the time, being a film critic, that there was a degradation to the art of film criticism through things like that. Mm. No longer is it the time of like Pauline Kael. Like it's just, it doesn't seem like film critics are respected the way they are. It's like these guys in YouTube in their mother's basements saying, I like this movie. You should check it out versus like what I think we all really want to have. Sorry, this is now just a treatise. <laughs> but what I'm saying is like, do you feel that way? Do you feel like film criticism has lost its luster to a lot of people? And is and do you have any mission with, in relation to that? Well, well, certainly it's just it's just sort of demonstrably true, isn't it? You know, I mean, with the internet and all the rest of the social media platforms, everyone has the ability to proffer an opinion. And one of the things that I do is I try to make a distinction between film criticism and film reviewing. Anybody can review a film. That's certainly true. Anybody can review anything. But engaging in analytical criticism is a different thing altogether. Mm. That's the thing that I've tried to do is to make sure that people understand that there is a divide here. And I guess the best illustration of it is in the work itself. You know, so like I said before, the least important thing I will ever tell you about a film is whether or not I like it. Everything else I say about it will be of, I hope, substantial value in illuminating or illustrating or educating or framing, contextualizing all of these sort of things. Joe, whatever his name is on his, you know, <laughs> that's not what they are doing. Generally speaking, that's not what they are doing. So a lot of this then falls back on the person who's engaging of this material. It falls back on them to decide what do they really want? Do they want actual film criticism or do they just want someone to tell them whether or not they like the film? Mm. And then I suppose we sort of divide ourselves as we will. There's some people who hate film criticism, who hate film critics altogether, don't want to know anything about a movie until they've seen it for themselves. I deeply, deeply respect that. And, you know, and then there's everybody else. There's everybody in between. But I, I think that folks like I think like you guys and me, we avoid the other stuff and we engage in folks who are actually doing film criticism. You put a lot of faith in us without, no, without knowing that for sure. I love that. Well, I mean, it's hard to, to really know because like you read a review and it's like you start to see all this really colorful wording and wordplay and whatever. And people are trying to really be fancy in their criticism, you know, but like when you get down to it, it's like really the meat and the actual analytic discussion of the movie that they're having within the article, which is important, which I feel like is, yeah, like you said, not always there. But my question to you is, what is your process in that? Like, how do you approach analytically breaking down a film and then writing about it? Well, for me, it, it's always been, and, you know, just gut reaction. Watch a film. The film uh, affects you. The film engages you or not. But the film will be will do the work of, of the film on you. And then the question becomes one for myself. You know, has this film, did this film achieve it's intention. I'm very much engaged in the intention of the filmmaker, you know, and filmmakers have an intention. There's something that they're trying to say, even if it's something just goofy and funny or whatever, but sometimes deeper, deeper and more profound. But filmmakers have an intention. And to the extent that I understand that intention, having watched the film, and I can make some sort of judgment about whether or not that film, that filmmaker achieved its intention, that to me 
is a positive outcome for that filmmaker. <laughs> you know, they had an intention, they made a movie, the movie communicated the intention and achieved it. So I'm going to write what I would call a positive review of that film. Now, the next part of that process will be contextualizing everything I just said. And if I'm writing a piece or talking about it on the radio or whatever it happens to be, I'm probably going to use references to juxtapose that film against, to give people a framework. You know what I mean? It likens one to remember, blah, 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 whatever it might be. When I'm actually doing the work. And then, and then if, there, if, if there are weaknesses or places where the film does not achieve its goal or intention, I'll mention those. And generally speaking, all of that together will usually round out to a fairly decent and fair review of you know, whatever movie I'm talking about. I'm thinking about the flip side where it's a independent filmmaker makes a movie and they're told you got to get as many reviews as possible. You got to get Ron Tomatoes. You got to get IMDb ratings that are high. You got to hit the algorithm. And there's someone on Rotten Tomatoes who's reading through Rotten Tomatoes approved critic and going, this is a positive review. I'm going to put a tomato on here. And this is a negative. review. You know, I mean, it's like this black and white assessment of what a review is versus a substantial breakdown in criticism. I think it's back to that idea of criticism versus review. They're taking the criticism and they're turning it into a review, whether it's positive or negative. And as a filmmaker who also reviews films, do you feel like you're making or breaking a film when you put a review out publicly? Do you feel that kind of pressure or... Well, I make or break. That's, you know, that's a whole lot of power. And I don't think I have that kind of power. Perhaps there have been film critics who did probably more in the past than currently because film critics are not held in that much esteem anymore. But, you know, 40, 45 years ago, a uh, Rex Reed or somebody like that, you know, Rex could, you know, could make it happen or, or break it off. But, you know, that's long. Even, even maybe back in the days of Cisco and Ebert, you know, at the movies, they had some juice. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that there are too many film critics held at that. Justin Chang is a pretty important film critic. Yeah. Me, I don't think I can make or break anybody. However, I do think I can help along a filmmaker for sure. I can definitely, definitely do that. And generally speaking, when I, when I do a film review, I, I'm going to be honest about my feelings about that film and its achieving of its intention. But I, I think you can do that always without being mean, being belittling, being dismissive or any of those things that Rex Reed used to do quite a lot. <laughs> Actually, you know, <laughs> you know, I've never been that kind of a film critic. So certainly there have been films that I didn't care for as much as I cared for other films. And if somebody were to read that review, it would be clear to them that I didn't feel like this film, you know, achieved its goals or the goals that, that you know, by measurement of, you know, what the bar is in the genre. You know, there's, cause there's, a, there's a bar in the genre, romantic comedy, whatever it happens to be. And, you know, and, and, and either a movie gets over the bar or it doesn't get over the bar. So that's true. So, yes, I'm aware of all of that. I'm, I don't think I'm a make or break guy, but I understand that, it, that, that something that I say can definitely matter. So I think about what I say in relationship to whatever film I'm talking about. I hate stars and thumbs and, you know, in all <laughs> that kind of boxes. I, I hate all of those. I hate all of those. I've been forced to do them. I, obviously, Rotten Tomatoes makes you do it. But, I, you know, there have been places where I have written that didn't require any of that. You just wrote the piece because the thing about requiring all of that stuff, you know, the stars and thumbs and all of this kind of stuff is the reader will just look at that and skip the reading of the review <laughs> to get some sort of nuanced understanding of what the film is about. And they'll just look at the number of stars, five of them, and they don't read the review and just go to the movie, two of them, and they don't read the review and don't go to the movie. I hate all of those things, but it's, we've been reduced to that. 
I just want my follow up is that I want you to know that you're in my bio. <laughs> and like my humble brag in my bio is that my film was reviewed by you. So I just wanted to say, okay, anyway, that's all. I love that. That's amazing. So I have a few questions. I, I can't decide what to go with first. So I'm just going to throw one out there. How important do you think it is or like impactful? Like if you do get your name on a poster or in advertising as a reviewer, like, do you think that actually matters? Like, is it going to actually make your career better as a critic? Or is it just something that looks cool that you can brag about to your friends? Well, look, I've been at this long enough to have had my name bumped up against a review, a poll quote. Most of the time, by the way, have nothing to do with anything I actually said about that film. Very, very, it's, it's just, you know, <laughs> they take them out of context. They cut, they splice senses out. They do the ellipses. You know, they, they do whatever they, they can to make it. So, you know, I've had big, big movies. You know, I've been on posters that were in Times Square. You know, time, and no, has never made any difference whatsoever in my life as a film critic at all, ever. It's never made me more money. It's never made me more important. If it did anything, it just made my mother happy. My mother saw my name in the paper. Oh, your name's in the paper with the thing and that's about it other than that nothing <laughs> Oh man, that's amazing. Since Liz isn't talking, I'm going to go with my second one. So I wanted to talk about intention in film because I think this is like a really interesting topic that I'm fascinated by because I feel like as filmmakers, we all, like you said, we all have intention in what we make, but when you're going into that as a viewer, how you read and interpret that intention can be very different from person to person. So I guess the question is to you, like if you watch a movie and like, if you love it or you hate it, but you come away with the intention of the filmmaker based on your watching of the film, does it matter to you what the actual filmmaker's intention was? Like, do you want to meet that filmmaker one day and ask them what they were thinking here? Or is it to you, is that irrelevant? It's like, oh, I have the intention that the story gave me and that's what's on the screen. So that's what matters. Well, yeah, the second thing you said, right? Because, you know, I understand that, you know, we're all sitting there being individuals and these films are washing over us and being filtered through whatever it is that we're bringing with us you know, as a viewer. And as a film critic, one of the things that we should be doing is being very aware of ourselves and what we're bringing to the watching of this film and how uh, all of that baggage, for lack of a better word, can skew our perspective and point of view. And we end up getting a message from that film that's profoundly different than the message that that filmmaker actually put in that film. So I try to be very aware of that. And I try to, it's funny, I, I teach, I teach, I teach. I'm teaching my ethics class. And one of the things that we're talking about is bias. You know, all the different kind of biases that we walk around with as journalists. This is a journalism class. And one of the issues that's big in the conversation right now is whether or not objectivity is a myth. Mm. That in fact, there is no such thing as objectivity. Journalists are supposed to be objective, of course. You know, we have these biases. We either don't have the biases or we set the biases aside so that we can engage in this objective process. Obviously, this is very important for a film critic, this sort of notion. But a new notion is that there's no such thing as objectivity, that you come with all of these things. And it is better to recognize that you are not objective and that you have all of these filters and to make sure that your audience that you're writing for as a film critic or whatever it happens to be knows this about you too, so that everything is on the table when you engage in these moments of criticism. You know, I'm a guy who, if I'm watching a movie about a guy who is accused of rape, is probably going to be on the side of the accuser. And you're going to have to prove to me that you did not rape her. <laughs> you, and this, is, this is fundamentally incorrect in terms of Jewish prudence. I don't care. I already know I'm not objective. I'm not objective. I'm not trying to be objective. I will not be objective. I promise you I won't. 
<laughs> but you're going to know that as I write this film review. And then you can decide what you feel about that. So these are the questions. And over the years, man, I used to be the other guy. I used to be, oh, I can set aside all my biases and I can be completely objective. I'm going to review this movie or engage in this act of journalism. And today, nah, nah, no, I'm not doing that. Not even trying to do that. Not sure that's even possible. Not sure I ever did it when I thought I was doing it. And I feel much better now as a film critic, not doing it and just simply saying, you know, I, I've got a dog in this race <laughs> and, and, and this film is going to go through these filters and then people can decide whatever they think. I want to talk about the mechanics of pitching to you or pitching to critics. We get pitches from guests who are like, please let me be on your show. And here's why. And, and we make snap judgments and like, who do we want on the show? And, you know, we're as filmmakers, we work with publicists and they craft together a pitch to critics for coverage. But is there something that you're looking for when you're deciding whether to cover a film in some way? Is it, I mean, do you discard the templatized reach outs from publicists or are you reading them and waiting to be inspired? I definitely pay attention. If I don't read them wholly and completely, I definitely scan them. I'm always waiting. I don't care anything whatsoever about big, gigantic studio films. So all my buddies are at the James Bond film right now, which is the screening <laughs> in Hollywood. Uh, two hours. And I think he told me 40 some odd minutes. The Bond film, by the way. And I couldn't go because I had to teach. I was doing this and all this kind of stuff. But to be honest with you, even if I could have gone, eh, Probably, you know, I'll just see it when I'll just see it when I see it. If I didn't have to see that for work, I don't have to write about it. I'm not on the radio that week and I don't happen to be. Then the Bond film is just a Bond film and I'll see it when I see it. And, and I will see it, but I'll just see it when I see it. If a publicist sends me a notice about a little film and I do, and, I, and I'm like, oh, that sounds interesting. Clever, funny, whatever it is. And then, you know, like everybody else, I'll look to see, you know, who's in it, who made it, that kind of stuff. Sometimes there'll be a namey kind of person in it or something like that. And, you know, sometimes that matters. Sometimes it doesn't. If the film really strikes me as interesting and there is, quote unquote, nobody in it, you know, super big, gigantic quotes, I will unequivocally commit myself to watching that film because, you know, that's ballsy. I like that. <laughs> to not have a name in your movie? Yeah, because that means, that means you know what? I don't need some guy who was a TV star 15 years ago. <laughs> to, yeah, yeah, I don't need that. I'm making this movie <laughs> with these people right here because these people can act. They can inhabit these characters I'm doing. And if you need to be looking at a face that you know, then you're not going to be paying attention to my movie, which is what I actually want you to do. Mm. So very often when they're out there and they're swinging, they're swinging all alone. That makes me very excited. <laughs> I don't issue a film, but I'll be, yeah. yeah I'll, I'll, and very often, those are the films I love. Those would be the ones. By the way, you'll love my movie because there's nobody famous in my film that I'm <laughs> see what I mean. Get out in the world right now. I, I was wondering, like, do you ever get pitched by filmmakers directly? And if so, do you ever take those on, or do you need it to come through like appropriate channel if you're going to review something? Nah, I don't care anything about that. I got three or four LinkedIn hitups right now from <laughs> filmmakers who sent me links to their films, and I always say, I'll absolutely watch your film. I don't know exactly when I'm going to watch your film, but I'm definitely going to watch your film. It will be up to your film whether or not I make it all the way through your film. <laughs> you know, I, I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't have anything to do with that, but I'm going to cue that film up and start it, and that film is either going to lock me to my seat and make me watch it to the end, or it won't. And they do as often as they don't. And sometimes I will write a piece for those films. Sometimes I may not have the time to write a piece for the films, but I'll give the filmmaker a quote and tell them, you can go out and tell people that I said this about your film. 
And so it'll, it'll be what it is, but that's what it has to be. It just has to be what it is. But absolutely send me a link to your film. I will queue up your film and your film will make, will either make me watch it or it won't. You'll be getting an email from me later today. <laughs> I'm not kidding. <laughs> no, but I think that's really wonderful because I guess I know I'm kind of bogarting this conversation, but what makes you have that feeling? Like, why would you be more interested in the random email from like some small unknown little filmmaker than like the publicist that has like, you know, maybe some movie star or somebody that was famous once in it? Like, why does the little guy or girl excite you more than, you know, whatever, whoever, I don't know, Eric Roberts or something. Well, and, 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 and I can, and, and Eric, that's a perfect example, right? If I get it, if I get it, something that's an Eric Roberts, I know that those filmmakers are counting on Eric Roberts and, the, and whatever lingering fame. And that's where all their marbles really are. They made the movie about whatever the movie's about, but it's going to be, it's going to be about the kind of, the kind of thing that Eric Roberts will do in a movie nowadays. And that's, Perfectly fine. Probably not going to interest me, you know, and which isn't always true, by the way. I, I used to say that about Nick Cage's films for years. How I said that about Nick Cage. You? How dare you? It's not true anymore. No, it's not. I agree. Now, when you get a Nick Cage, you know, from the publicist, you're probably going to want to watch that film. You know, yeah, you Willie's Wonderland. Are you kidding me? Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, go Nick, go. <laughs> That's, and so, so, you know, it, but the filmmakers said, so, so, you know, they weren't just buying Nick Cage. There was a film for Nick Cage to be in. And that's the thing that I'm trying to discern now when it comes to me and it's just this movie and I read the little synopsis and what it's about. I'm like, mm, that sounds interesting, which of course is the point of the movie in the first place. An interesting story that will engage me and carry me along. Years ago, I stopped going to movies or engaging movies because of the movie star. There used to be a time when the movie star was the thing. It's a time. Cruise movie. It's a, a Tom Hanks movie. We're all going to go to the Tom Hanks movie. We didn't even say the title. <laughs> we would just call it by the movie star. We're going to go to the block. We want you to just name the movie star. You going to see the new Denzel Washington movie? Yeah, I'm going to see the, what's it called? I don't know. <laughs> but this new Denzel Washington movie. But that doesn't really happen anymore. It doesn't happen for me anyway. I'm, I don't want to speak for everybody. It doesn't happen for me anymore. I don't, I don't care. I don't care about the new Denzel Washington movie or the new Tom Cruise movie because of them. If they're in a movie and the movie is good and they're good in the movie, that's fabulous. And I will say so. But nothing about that by itself do I care about at all. I just don't care. I'm thinking back again to the days of just seen it when David was like, well, I don't even know if you had that mandate, but behind closed doors, he would say we can only cover wide release films. And his mentality was our platform to gather audiences. We can only release, you know, we had our most popular video was like us just talking about Game of Thrones. It wasn't even reviewing. It was just like, <laughs> I love Tyrion. Like it was just us talking about it. It's not even a movie. <laughs> it's not even a movie. It's completely off brand. So I'm trying to get to the bottom line of your business model. I know that you teach, you write, you have all these things that you do. Did your websites that you write for, I don't know if they're your employer or your partner or whatever, but did they mandate that you have to cover certain films and then you just add on these smaller films as like icing on the cake or how does it work in terms of your workload? Well, even right now, in terms of, you know, sort of like biggest outlet, you know, film week, KPCC 89.3, you know, it's, it's a big old NPR affiliate and it reaches 250,000 people at any given moment. And it's based here in, you know, Southern California, Hollywood, Pasadena, Hollywood, where the studios are and all the big films are released. And we absolutely must cover every major release every week, period. Yeah. And, you know, that's that. The Bond movie will lead on whatever show that is. And 
we work our way through that. And sometimes it would be that there were so many big releases that they would just suck up the whole show, eight movies. And all of the indies or the indie indies and the little tiny movies, we didn't talk about at all. It hasn't been quite that bad for a while. So we, we do get to talk about indie films. And we even have a situation now where, you know, we know we're going to talk about these major films, but generally speaking, you know, Larry and the producers of the show will say, if there's something here that you just must talk about, that you feel is really super important and it's not a big gigantic release, we will let you talk about it. So for instance, last week on the show, I was on the show and I talked about this little tiny doc called Mr. Kelly's, Live at Mr. Kelly's. Hmm which is just a little doc about this lounge that was in Chicago on Rush Street in the, in the 30s, 40s, 50s. This wonderful interracial lounge where all the most important people that you can think of, Barbara Streisand, but it was completely interracial. They started this lounge in 1953, really before the civil rights movement even began. And my point is, Larry let me talk about the movie on the show, but it was not in lieu of talking about the big movies. So the big movies had to happen. Every place that I write for now, you know, I'm, I write whatever I want, whenever I want. No, nobody tells me what to write anymore. So that's, that's good. And yeah. yeah. <laughs> Do you have a preference in talking about film either like on the radio show or in print? Do you feel like one has more power for you than the other? Or is it like kind of just equal but different expressions of your thoughts on movies? Well, I used to have a, a big preference for print. You know, you can write as much as you, as you, you know, I'd write a 2000 word piece back in the day. And then, you know, a certain amount of prestige comes with that and all and whatnot. Today, however, I know that nobody reads 2000 word pieces. And generally speaking, if it's in print, you're going to be very, very limited, 500 words, you know, something like that. On the radio, we're limited to a certain amount too. you know, the actual broadcast radio, because, you know, you have to hit moments. But I know that that, that is a much, much more powerful platform. It's the live show. Plus, there's the podcast, which gets downloaded, you know, or, or listened to, you know, all over the world. So I definitely, definitely made that. Plus all the other podcasts, or, you know, audio podcasts, video podcast and, and they just have more more impact than anything i write uh, more people hear that radio show than would ever read any given thing that i write about the exact same film so what i generally speaking do is i i, I sort of write what it is that i want to say about a film on the radio show so the thing that you hear me saying about a film on the radio show is, is part and parcel of what I, I i would write about that if i were going to write a film review and certainly, if I am writing a full review, the things that I say on the radio show will show up in that written review, too. Hmm. I know we have to move to our final questions. I have one last question. Maybe Ulrich has one last question. But as a filmmaker, I just wanted to hear you speak to, if you're open to it, whether you write as a response to other films. Are you writing kind of with that contextualized mind that serves you so well in film criticism? Are you also making a commentary in the scripts you write? Uh, I absolutely do. It's the only kind of scripts I ever write. The little film that we are doing now is shape. It's a comedy. It's called Miss Daisy. And it's about a, a, a brother, a middle-aged brother who's an Uber driver. And he's driving a young black, a young black woman around all day 
whose name is Daisy. It's this ongoing joke that he's driving this Daisy. <laughs> and, and, this is just, and they and, and they all they do is drive around all day, and he just watches what she's doing and how she lives her life as this young black woman, and is very impressed. And there's a little drama behind it and all that kind of stuff. But the entire film is a commentary on the black community. We roam around Compton and Watts, and, and we go to a black beauty shop, and and we just hang around the hood with, with you know a bunch of black folks doing black things the way black people do. <laughs> and, and just the, the moments in love themselves are the commentary. And generally speaking, anything that, I, that I'm doing as narrative film has to have some sort of social commentary about it. So, yeah, even if it's inside of a genre piece, you know, a horror piece or something like that. Yeah, I, I, I try to be pointed without being didactic. I had a question just kind of going back to something that you said earlier. You talked about bias and how you used to think that you could be unbiased as a critic, you know, in your earlier days of writing about movies and that now you don't feel the same way. And I'm just wondering, like, do you think that's because of just your life experience or because of something to do with the times that we're in? Or do you feel like it's just age that like as you grew up, you realized that that was the case always? Or I don't know, do you have any idea of why your perspective has changed? Uh, a little bit of everything that you just said, you know, I turned 60 back in, in July. And when I got to town and first started writing, I was 29, you know, more than 30 years ago. So there's that. <laughs> <laughs> and, and of course, it, it, we are in just this, this different moment of everything since the Me Too movement, which started 10, 15 years ago, where, uh, you know, there's a certain sort of accountability that's required now. And I think that we're all forced to look at things with more acuity and just be more realistic about things and not pretend like we don't see things that we do see and don't understand things that we do understand. Yeah, I just don't want to I just don't, don't want to do that anymore. You know, I mean, there are a whole lot of films that I reviewed in the early 90s that had these real sort of undertones and not on purpose or anything like that, of racism. They were just these crazy racist films. <laughs> you know, they weren't overtly racist. They were racist by omission. Sometimes like this. I could name a dozen films between 1990 and 2000 that had no black people in them, no Latino people in them, no people of, any, of color in them at all. The whole movie. And nobody said a thing. Very popular films that I even loved. But literally, there were no black people in the movie. <laughs> you, you, you know, at all, no brown people in the movie at all. That was a regular sort of event. And then it got worse, where if there were some people of color in the movie, they were usually doing something heinous. <laughs> or, or just, you know, not the best person in the movie. Or they were in service, right? I mean, after Brown talked about that on... All of that. On all Friday of Life. that. Yeah. You know, and I didn't, and I wrote about those movies and I did not, and I did not say in my reviews, you know, you know, black people in this movie, <laughs> you know, what the, what the hell? Like, seriously, you can make a whole movie with all these movie stars. Or if there is a black person, she is the maid. Are you kidding me? <laughs> That's the only one. So by the time we get to the help, you know, everybody loved the help. And I, I believe you just mentioned Green Book. By the time we get to the help in Green Book, I'm sorry, I'm noticing <laughs> in my writing. <laughs> uh, excuse me, you know, I don't, the, the way these movies are contextualized, you know, I, I, and so, hey, look, Green Book won an Oscar. That was perfectly insane to me. <laughs> that was just <laughs> crazy. This is just crazy. <laughs> as, 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 so, but I said so. But, you know, 25 years ago, I would have probably reviewed Green Book and not even mentioned that it was crazy. So, but no, not anymore. Not anymore. They, that can't, I can't do that. Years ago, movies that were demonstrably sexist or demonstrably whatever, 
all those, what was his name? Joe Esterhaus. Remember Joe Esterhaus? Oh yeah, of course. <laughs> Joe <Jeez>. made, <laughs> Joe just made a mess. <laughs> all these movies, showgirls. Oh my God. But you, know, but you know, back then, you know, nobody said, at least I you know, Hey man, maybe Joe, <laughs> maybe, maybe <laughs> salad back. Dial it back a notch there, Joe. <laughs> you're, 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 yeah. Nobody's setting these things anymore. Now, you know, these things. And by the way, I, I don't dislike showgirls or anything. Like that. I, I think what's, what I think about is nuts about showgirls. It's the way all of Hollywood dropped on Elizabeth Berkeley. I know. What, what, what did she do? <laughs> she didn't do anything. <laughs> she just acted in the movie. She, she just acted in the movie. Yeah. You know, I'm like you, you guys are all. You know, she's twenty whatever years old. You guys are all these professional filmmakers, and you're big in you know, Hollywood and studios and all this kind of stuff. You're telling me this is a great movie. And I should be in it and do all this stuff. And she's like, okay, I'm going to put myself in the hands of Hollywood. Uh, and Hollywood kicked her for twenty years. And you got Paul Verhoeven and Joe Essahaus leading this movie, and you're like, okay, that seems like a slam dunk here, right? Like we're going to be okay, you know? You know? And, and I'm like, look, if any, anyway, <laughs> Hollywood, Hollywood could be ridiculous. So anyway, I love Elizabeth. But those are the kind of things that I would never let slide anymore. Right. At all. We were talking about John Hughes with my nephew, who's 18. And I was like, oh, John Hughes, like I'm a big John Hughes fan. I was like, yeah, 16 Candles. And he's like, yeah, my mom showed me 16 Candles. Date rape. And I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, and there, there are a lot of those. Yeah. John was mostly knocking those yeah. out in the 80s. Yeah, I was still in the Air Force in the 80s. So I hadn't actually started reviewing movies yet. But yeah. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of very questionable behavior. Yeah. Uh, Animal House? They're oh. rolling a girl around in a, in a, in a, in a shopping cart. Yeah. <laughs> you know, a drunk girl yeah. in a shopping cart. And I know that I went to Animal House. Look, <laughs> and, and on the other hand, Woody Allen's period uh, there in the late 70s, Manhattan, Annie Hall, these films. And then, of course, we fast forward to today and we have all of our issues around Woody Allen. Now, I know I was, I was a teenager when, when those movies came out, 77 or something like that. I think those were 77, 79. But I was definitely still in high school. And I remember going to see those movies with my mother. And I know that we love them. My mother loved them. I know that everyone who saw those movies and talked about those movies, if you watch the Siskel and Ebert review and all that kind of stuff, everybody loved them. They were considered very sophisticated movies at the time. And for years, Manhattan was probably, me and my wife, one of our favorite movies. You know, we just loved that beautiful movie and the Gershwin. And it was just a beautiful, beautiful movie. We loved it. And, you know, we, we land where we are today and Woody's trying to knock, he's, you know, he's, 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 trying, to, he's trying to hunker the 16-year-old girl. He's hunkering the 16-year-old girl. He, you know, he's, he's, this is, he's 42 or 44 in the movie and the girl is 16. And then, of course, we learn from Mariel Hemingway, well, you know, he wasn't just trying to fuck the character. He was trying to hit me too. I was also 16, just like her. And it just reshapes all of that for me. And in a way that kind of hurts because I dearly loved that movie. It's an experience that I had with my mom. She took me to see Manhattan, but now it all, it sits in this nebulous space Yeah, and I haven't watched it since I haven't watched it since. Yeah. It's tough with Woody Allen. Cause I'm such a big fan of his films, but yeah, it's like now it's, it's just like, you can't, you don't see them the same way anymore, you know, and it's, it, no. it sucks, but terrible. 
No, it's Woody's fault, not ours. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. On that Jerk. note. Um, <laughs> so we have these final five questions and you are a filmmaker in addition to being a film critic, even though we've really focused on the film criticism aspect of your career. So you can choose to answer this in whatever role you'd like to. The first question is, we changed it as if you would answer it as a film critic, but what's the first film you reviewed and how do you feel about it now? The original question is, what's the first film you made and how do you feel about it now? So the first film I reviewed was Stanley and Iris, Martin Ritt film, Robert De Niro and Jane Fonda. That's a professional film critic about 1990. And it was back when you had to do all the research yourself, you know, because there was no internet <laughs> to just go and get all the details and all that kind of stuff. And I remember going to see it at the Fox in Westwood. Mm-hmm. And standing and looking at the poster and at the credit block on the poster and writing down all of the information before I went into the cinematographer and you know, the, the, the production design, you know, just in case I mentioned them in the review and sitting there. And every time the, the scene would get bright enough, I would write real notes <laughs> real quick. <laughs> <laughs> and then, then the scene would go dark again. again like that. After about a year, I stopped taking notes at films. I, you know, I, I thought that was a thing that film critics did, you know, sit, take notes in the dark about the film. Then I realized you don't have to do that. But that was the first film I reviewed, Stanley and Iris, which I liked a lot, by the way. The first film I made was in film school and it was a documentary and it was about the homeless in St. Louis. I was still in graduate school in St. Louis. And it was about it was about the homeless population in St. Louis. One winter in 1987, it aired on PBS and won some sort of a local uh, something award. What's the best writing advice you've ever received or it could be filmmaking advice, either one? You know, that writing advice of uh, write what you know is absolutely excellent advice. Still is. <laughs> it still is. <laughs> you, you don't have to only write what you know. But if you start there, you can expand the things that you know. And it means you can write about just about anything because you can come to know about just about anything. So write what you know is, is really, really good writing advice. I, the writing advice I would give Stephen King, the horror writer, wrote a book about writing some years ago. And I think it's called On Writing. Stephen King on writing. And I would recommend everybody grab that little book, very short little book that he wrote about process and technique. And man, I just love that my wife who wrote several novels, that was the book that really unleashed her as a writer. Because the bottom line that Stephen King said was, there simply is no incorrect writing. <laughs> it's just, you know, whatever you're writing, it's great. <laughs> then it can only get better. <laughs> but if, you, if it's on the page, if you wrote a sentence, if you got a paragraph, if you got a chapter, believe me, you win. <laughs> because everybody else is just thinking about it. Do you have a professional goal that you want to achieve? Well, yeah, I got a professional goal. I, look, I'm, I'm 60, so, you know. <laughs> I, I, most of my professional goals, I'm living. I suppose my professional goal was to get up every day and only do things that I want to do and like to do and would be engaged in. And I, I, I literally do that every day. Every day, I'm either writing about a movie or talking about a movie or making a movie or something with a movie or a TV show. So I, yeah, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and say I, 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 I got that one pretty good. If you could go back in time, what's one piece of advice you would give yourself? Um... Well, I think it would be don't believe the naysayers. They're always there. And this would be don't believe any of the naysayers. None of the ones that were there when I was 10 or 14 or 25 or 35 or 45. Or, you know, there's always somebody who is a naysayer. Yeah, it won't work. That's not going to happen. That's a bad idea. All those things. They're always there. Ignore them completely. 
I didn't always ignore them. Sometimes I would let them burrow into my head and thus not do a thing or put off a thing or, or, or whatever. I haven't done it in years, but I wish that somebody would have told me I wish I would have told me <laughs> 30 years ago, 35 years ago, 40 years ago. Eh, ignore all that. Do whatever you want. Nice. Final question. Is making movies hard? Oh, making movies is ridiculously hard. It's so hard. And people should know that. But here's the thing. So everything's hard. So, you know, making movies is hard also. <laughs> so, 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 you know, yes, making movies is hard. But I promise you, if you got to go to Walmart tomorrow, that's going to be hard. <laughs> so, so, you know, yes, making movies is hard. But it's perfectly doable, perhaps even more doable today than it ever has. You know, cameras, digital, digital all, that, all that kind of stuff. And to a certain extent now, it is easier in this way. It's come back down to the story now. Pretty much everybody can actually make a movie. You can get a camera, a digital camera. Most folks can figure out lighting and sound and do the things it takes to execute a scene and then another scene and then another scene and thus put all those together and make a movie. Most people can do that, but it won't mean that they've made a good movie. They will just made a movie. The hard part is making a good movie, which is about something that will engage whatever audience that it's pointed at and communicate your intention. That's the hard part. And funnily enough, that begins well before you ever turn on a camera. Thank you for being on the show, Tim. <laughs> Thank you for having me, guys. I super duper appreciate it. We usually allow our guests or we encourage our guests to say how they like to promote people to follow them or support them in any way. Do you have a call to action for yourself? Oh, well, you look, people can find me. <laughs> my, my call to action just sucks. People can find me by, by just <laughs> typing my name into the internet. <laughs> And the mighty, mighty internets will bring me to them <laughs> and everything I think and have to say. So that's, that's all. Don't you worry about it. It's okay. That's amazing. I love it. That's the best plug ever. <laughs> Type my name into the internet. You will find me. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. All right. What do you remember about talking with Tim? Well, Tim is a delightful person, and I loved how open he was with his process and how he writes reviews and with like the way his review writing like philosophies have changed over the years. I thought that was like extremely fascinating. He went from this place of trying to be completely unbiased and coming at it without any of his own personal influences into like thinking about how he responded to the movie or how the good the movie is. And then now, you know, later in life, he's like, no, that's impossible to do. I never, even when I thought I was doing it, I was never doing it. Now, like why pretend that I am able to do this thing when I can't? And so just embrace my own life experiences and then how that affects my enjoyment or my, you know, opinion of a film. And I thought that was really fascinating. I also love what he said about like when people solicit reviews from him and how if they're an unknown filmmaker with unknown talent in their movie, he's even more interested in covering it than if it's somebody with like, you know, a name in the film. Mm -hmm. And so I thought that was fascinating. And then I, you know, sent him my movie. Did you? Yeah, I did. And so, yeah, I think he might, you know, think I might get a, a little thing from him. I don't know what he's going to do, if it's going to be a review or just a little article. But yeah, he said he liked it. So thank you, Tim. It's awesome. <laughs> Tim Cogshaw. 
I was on this movie review show, which I mentioned on the show with Tim. And the reason I really am drawn to him is because we would go on the show and the whole idea is that it's a panel review show. So you'd review a film and talk about it with two to three other people. And I was always so intrigued by his response to films. They always just felt so substantive, so interesting. And I just always wanted to listen to him talk. And for me, I just like coined him. I'm like, you're my favorite. And then he reviewed, I think, both Speed of Life and Bread and Butter. And he gave me the kindest pull quote that anyone has ever said. And like, it's silly, but those things are really meaningful to an indie filmmaker. When a critic of note, someone who's like on film week says something really generous, it is like in my bio, his quote on my film is in my bio. It's like that (laughs) meaningful to me. So I was just so glad he wanted to be on our show. Yeah, it was really a fun conversation. And I mean, I love talking to filmmakers and film lovers. And I mean, he's a person I could have talked to for hours about movies and just gotten into like all kinds of details about movies and yeah, it was just a delight. So I hope people like it as much as I always say this every week. I hope you guys like it as much as we did because I loved it. It was great. But Liz, I think it's time to talk about news. And that this week, we have a really cool article from No Film School about this pushback on vaccines from some Hollywood A-list actors and even, you know, unions. I was scratching my head. I was like, really? (laughs) Are you kidding me? Like all the stuff that we have to do for COVID protocol and people are like anti-vaccine within the industry. It just seems nuts to me because all the hoops that we have to go through, if you're able to get a little bit away from those hoops to like do it in the way that we used to do it one day, I figured that everybody would be on board with this. But I guess... I don't know, that's just my naive, you know, brain thinking here. But yeah, I wanted to know, like, is this something that you've heard of before? Or is this the first you're learning of this like me? I'm friends with a lot of conservatives, which I know sounds always surprising to people in California. And I'm an independent, but I'm more like a Bernie Sanders independent. So I'm like a little bit <laughs> on the other side and I'm double vaxxed, you know, and all these things. But I tend to be really attracted to arguments about personal freedom to be super candid. Whereas this is different. If you're on a film set and it's a social contract and you're being paid like a lot of money as an actor to participate in it, I like the idea of, I mean, if there's not a vaccine mandate, then at least that there's some sort of oversight with regard to separation of the zones, temperature, whatever it is that works. I have some friends who are anti-vaccine and I just don't think... I can argue with them because they have very specific reasons. There's a distrust of the medical community that they have that's so culturally ingrained that I can't argue with that. I actually can understand Anthony Anderson in the article was like, I'm not trying to tell people what to do. And I kind of feel that way too. But I think if you're working on a film set and you're putting people at risk, the answer can't just be, I'm not vaccinating. That's the end of it. It has to be, what are you going to do as an individual to make up for the fact that you're not getting the vaccine, right? How are you going to compensate? Yeah. So I like Anthony Anderson's quote, but I think it's different when you're being paid millions of dollars to star in a movie. And when you have a responsibility to like the safety of others around you, right? Like I have a lot of family and friends who are also anti-vaccination, but like the thing that really, really drives me crazy and makes it hard for me is that when people who aren't anti-vaccination 
vaccines are anti the COVID vaccine. It's like you right. inject yourself with every other single vaccine known to man. But this one is like, nah, I ain't going to do it. Like, I don't, I don't like this one. That is where I, I can't understand it. Yeah, sure. Like, you know, if you don't believe in vaccinations, like that's your right. And I totally respect that. And that's totally fine. So I get that. But like, maybe you just can't star in this movie if that's your deal, you know, or maybe right. like you said, like you have to do other things to protect people from that, you know? Because it's not the other people that you should be concerned with, right? Right, exactly. So I, I don't know. I'm not going to sit here and say like, oh yeah, like definitely need to be vaccinated in order to like, you know, work on a movie set. But I mean, it kind of feels like that's where it's going, you know? Yeah. And I'm not necessarily going to say like, it's just your choice then. Yeah, it's your choice not to take this job if you don't want to do that. But then again, you know, then people call personal freedoms, blah, blah, blah. But what the hell? Like you already can't send your school kids to school unless they get vaccinated, at least in California. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, this is already the society we live in. There's already rules that we've all decided that we follow. So like, why is this any different than any of the other rules that we have to follow to live in this world? People don't like being told what to do. It's But you're already told what to do and you're already doing it. <laughs> it's, uh, it's very interesting. I mean, so for this short film that we're shooting this weekend, you know, I met with actors and actresses and crew and people. And every meeting I said, we are going to have a COVID compliance officer. We're going to have a safe set. You know, people are going to wear masks. And I talked to my producers and they were like, why are you being so coy? Just tell people that you need to be vaccinated. And I was like, I don't feel comfortable mandating a vaccination on set. So what we did is we said, all right, send us your vaccination card. Just send a picture of it to us. And if you're not providing that, you know, let's have a conversation one on one about what can be done. But we have like a pregnant woman on our set. So like it's really important that we're all very careful about how we interact with each other. And then, I mean, that's one thing is like, we're not mandating, but we are saying, give us your proof of vaccination. And the second thing is when they were questioning my coyness, they were like, people want to work and they were proud of the fact that they're vaccinated. You don't really have to sidestep around it. So when I started to bring up the fact that, I mean, we're all going to wear masks on set. And we have the CCO and we have these vaccine cards and we're doing temperature checks and all these things. Everyone that I talked to jumped to conclusions and just told me. And they're like, yeah, we're vaccinated. Don't worry. We're vaccinated. I've been in many different... There was like an enthusiasm to share the vaccination status from every single person on set. So there is a delicateness, but there's also on the other end, there's like this fervor to be like, I'm vaccinated. Hire me. And there's so many people who could fill in for the people who are not vaccinated. Yeah. Anyways, I don't know. We're not going to solve this right now. But um, what we can do is we could talk about my experience at Heartland International. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. What happened at Heartland? Tell me how it went. So it was wonderful. I got there early. I couldn't go to anything for like two days because I was working, which really sucked. There was this huge like opening party thing. Well, it wasn't an opening party. It was like a a gala event for this this documentary. And they had like free food and all this thing. And I I couldn't go. But I went the next night to a filmmaker event and I met a bunch of filmmakers. It was awesome. I met one guy, Thomas, who had a movie called Zero Gravity, I believe, a documentary. And he played at Dances with Films. And so he knew of my movie because Aww. we both premiered there. And, you know, we, we got to like have a little wonderful conversation. I met a bunch of other really great filmmakers. And I went and saw this movie called What Josiah Saw, which was in the horror category at Heartland. Yeah, they had Robert Patrick starring in the movie and Nick Stahl. And 
Tony Hale from Arrested Development. Ah! So I immediately was like, I want to lose to these guys. They're going to win. <laughs> they have better cast than me. And then after the movie, the executive producer like approached me and was like, hey, you are, you're on Purcell. You directed the alternate. I saw your art in the thing. It looks amazing. Like, your trailer is great. Your synopsis is awesome. Like, I want to see your movie. Send it to me. And so like I made a connection, like just going to a random screening that wasn't even for my movie. And I got to meet some filmmakers, which was really, really fun. So yeah, I don't know. That, that was kind of And Chrissy's unexpected. movie was there too. Yeah. Yeah. And See I you, met her next lead Christmas. actor. Yeah. Oh. I met AJ at the, the last party I went to on Sunday night and he was there. And I was like, I just introduced myself. And he's like, yeah, this is my movie. See you next Christmas. And I was like, I know that person. I know this film. <laughs> Awesome. And we just hit it off. And then I texted Matt later and, you know, yeah, it was, it was really fun. But I didn't get to see the film because it's not playing till I think it's playing tomorrow on Wednesday. Oh. He was just, I don't know how he had so much time to be there over the weekend, but you know, amazing actors spend so much wonderful time at the film festival. Cause it was, it was really cool. Like they had, they did events every night for filmmakers. They did like usually one event, you know, in the regular evening and then like an after hours event pretty much every day, I think, or at least that was what it was on Saturday. And then I think Friday, Sunday, it was just the after hours, but yeah, it was really cool. My screening, <laughs> oh, Liz, what my happened? screening, it was at this art museum that they basically had commissioned to upgrade their theaters. So they would have DCPs. So they could show multiple movies in this art museum and they did a number on this huge 500 seat auditorium and like really upgraded it make it super nice and beautiful my movie was at seven o'clock and then guess what movie also played at seven o'clock in the main theater in the same building the jason patrick one no the mike mills come on come on starring joaquin phoenix oh no that theater was completely packed to the brim 300 400 people and then I had 10 like dedicated, wonderful audience members. Oh, I have been there. I did want to watch Mike Mills' new movie, but wanted to see this little small indie sci-fi thriller. <laughs> did you so get their was, emails? Did you get the emails? I Art. did not get their emails. Work. No, I had to focus on, you know, doing, uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I just was <laughs> talking to other people. I didn't, I didn't stay. I didn't rush because I did a Q and A. I didn't rush to the back of the room and like try to get people's emails as they left. You just pass out a clipboard and then you stay in the front of the room. This is for yeah. your next screening. You stay in the front, but you'd pass out the clipboard. It moves around itself. Those are your 10 true fans because yeah. they came to see you. Yeah, I should have done it. I did. It's okay. Yeah, I don't know, but I, not I, had a bad. Good time. I think I played for four. So I've definitely played for four before yeah. and it was a good reaction. People liked it. They asked good questions. You know, the Q&A was fun. So, you know, I think overall it was it was a good experience, even though it was a small audience. But yeah, just pray when you go to a film festival, especially one that like plays marquee movies <sighs> like that. Just don't get scheduled opposite Mike Mills or... They also played Wes Anderson's new film on a different <gasps> night. Thank God I wasn't there when that happened. That would be, uh, that that'd be harder. Equally terrible. <laughs> I'm loving hearing this, though, because it's like it's funny that we're both on opposite sides of the same situation right now. I mean, I know mine is just a short, but it's still just like I'm just about to make it. And you're celebrating making yours. Yeah. And it's yeah. nice to hear everything you're going through. And I'm remembering the joy of film festivals. And I'm like, oh, that could be next year. That sounds really fun. 
I look forward yeah. to that. And hopefully there'll be less virtual screenings and more in person because yeah. I've gotten into a couple more film festivals since we've last talked, but they're all virtual, you know, mm-hmm. but it's good because basically what happened when I was gone this weekend at this film festival is my wife had a really hard time with my three month year old daughter. Yeah. So yeah, I'm not going to Philadelphia anymore. <laughs> So that announcement I made last week is canceled. No one can get sparkling water with you anymore. Yeah, no, exactly. And uh, yeah, not going to go to Kentucky. You know, still going to go to Italy, it looks like. That's the one I get, especially since they're covering like almost the whole the whole trip, which is incredible. That's so And I can't say the film festival yet, but I think I can say next week. Okay. But yeah, it'll be really, that's going to be a fun one. But anyways, yeah, one other thing I want to say about it yeah. is I did get two reviews out of A Heartland and they were both really positive. One was like so good. Like it's the best review I've ever gotten for anything. They said the nicest things anyone has ever said about anything I've ever done before. It was incredible. So oh yeah, if you get into Heartland, make sure that you reach out to all the people that they... Because the you know I emailed the, the press person. They good. provide me a list of all the press people. Good. I emailed every single one. I got one uniquely that was just didn't have anything to do with me emailing them. And then I got one from all the people I emailed. So it's like when you email 10 people, you get one review and it turns out to be a really good review. That's totally worth it. Totally so worth it. I'm doing that right now for Philadelphia and I'm going to do that for Kentucky as well. Although I don't think the Kentucky Film Festival had a press list, but I just went you know, online and found all the publications in Lexington and the small town. And then I'm just going to yeah. email all of them. Because I think trying to, if I can get more of these good reviews, it's already, it's already helped my distribution because we're in negotiations with two different people right now. And we were able to like send them the reviews and like some of the little like, you know, tidbits. And I feel like this one company got pretty excited, you know, when we were, you know, showed them the amount of festivals that we got into and the amount of reviews that we've been getting and our wins too. We got like a bunch of couple wins. Did I talk about that last week? No. We got some wins. Yeah. We won best narrative feature at Arizona <gasps> Underground. Yeah. <laughs> and then we also won best sci-fi feature at Atlanta Underground. Yeah. So that's bringing fantastic. In the, bringing in the gold. Think about just awesome. a few weeks ago. I feel like just a few weeks ago, <laughs> we were like down in the dumps, like overwhelmed. Especially I remember when you were like, uh, you were talking about how you weren't doing enough and you were stressed out about festivals. And now it's like, look, you're like, there's a tunnel. You're seeing the light at the tunnel. You're past the light. You're in the light yeah. past the tunnel. It feels pretty good, you know? And then, and then it's like, you still have the dark moments when you like watch your movie with an audience and then you're comparing it to other movies you saw at the festival and you're like, my movie is nowhere near as good as those other movies. But then you remember the good reviews and you're like, oh, well, I guess maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. It's just, it's just an emotional roller coaster, Liz, you know, and That's everything. What- So when I have those moments, I turn to Sean and I go, you know, like, it's not good enough. This isn't good enough. And he's like, good. I'm glad you don't think it's good enough because a good artist strives to get better and better every single time. Right. And what I really want him to say in that moment, he'll never listen to the podcast. What I really want him to say is, of course, it's good enough. It's a perfect movie. And I love it more than anything in the world. (laughs) But what he chooses to say is what is the truth, right? Is that it's not about whether it's good enough. It's about you pushing yourself to get better. I think no matter how many people say nice things about the movie, when I watch it, I'll just still see the flaws and still see the things that I wish I had done. And, and Sean will think things, that's good. 
That's a good that thing. Could have been better, you know. But yeah, I just want to, I just hope I get the chance to. It's just the same thing that I think I've been thinking the whole way is like, hopefully this movie is good enough for me to get my next movie, you know? Yeah. Like, and I, it feels so far that it, it seemingly seems that it's going in that direction, although it's too early to really tell. But I just the fact that we have offers for distribution and that we're getting good reviews is like, and that we've gotten into over 15 film festivals. I think all those things, it's just like, Oh, Ricky, you just need to relax. You did okay, kid. And it's not a one-to-one ratio. I don't think ever a scenario is where you make a movie and it enables you to make the next film. It's just one piece of the puzzle. So you're building a package right now, right? right? And the package looks good. Yeah, exactly. Got to just keep at it though, you know, just, and that's why I'm thinking about these things that we're talking about earlier, like how to structure the movie to like really make it as impressive as possible with like locations and stuff. And just thinking about while I'm working on my next project, like what can I do to ensure that it's going to like have the most impact as possible on the next one? You know, even if I can't get, you know, big actors in it, you know, like what can I do that will help, you know, without those things, you know, I think the answer is genre. (laughs) Well, yeah. I mean, well, I'm a genre filmmaker anyways. I'm always in genre. Yeah. (laughs) That's all I really care about making right now. I mean, maybe one day I want to make the, you know, artsy fartsy drama, but nah, I just like, uh, I like something with an edge. I was telling one of my Lyft drivers, it's like, I just needs to have some sort of edge to it. And like, that's what I am attracted to, whether it's sci-fi or it's horror, thriller, supernatural, whatever. It needs a little bit of difference, you know, just to make it interesting to me. I don't know. But I think, you know, it's time to get out of this episode. We've been talking forever. So we skip. You've got mail this week, but you can always send us a question, comment, or suggestion to podcast at makingmoviesishard.com. Or if you like the show, you can leave us a review on iTunes, which is amazing. You can also check us out on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter at MMIH Podcast and YouTube at Making Movies is Hard Podcast. Thanks to Tim Coxell for coming on the show. And thanks to Liz for, you know, getting Tim to, to do this because it was really one of my favorite episodes. Thanks to our new editor, Jeff. Vrymoot. For doing the editing. Thanks for listening and talk to you guys next week. So somebody ask us a question for the love of God and we'll answer it and we'll make it into a thing. I, I did, we don't have to say it that way. We could just say <laughs>